Your Excellencies, Founding President and CEO, Dr. Anthony, ladies and gentlemen, I am so very honored to have the opportunity to introduce our key note speaker, the Honorable Ambassador James Smith. In addition, I would like to also acknowledge his lovely wife, Dr. Janet Breslin Smith, who is here with us today. Janet, thank you very much for your service to and support of our country alongside your husband in the last several years. Until very recently, Ambassador Smith acted as the U.S. Ambassador to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and as I understand, he is now a new senior counselor at the Cohen Group. During his tenure as U.S. Ambassador to Saudi Arabia, Ambassador Smith helped to strengthen U.S.-Saudi business relations across all sectors, resulting in nearly 400 U.S. companies, if not more, exporting to the, to the kingdom for the first time and doubling of non-defense U.S. exports to the kingdom. Prior to his appointment, Ambassador Smith served from 2002 to 2009 in a variety of executive positions with Raytheon involving corporate strategic planning, aircraft manufacturing, and international business development. Preceding his time in the private sector, Ambassador Smith served in the U.S. Air Force for 28 years. Trained as a fighter pilot, he logged over 4,000 hours of flight time in F-15s and T-38s. And I think most of us don't even know what they are. <laughs> he served around the world in a variety of operational assignments and flew combat missions from Dhahran Air Base during Operation Desert Storm. He commanded the 94th Fighter Squadron, the 325th Operations Group, and the 18th Fighter Wing. In addition, he served in a variety of staff assignments involving coalition partners and served as Air Force Chair and Professor of Military Strategy at the National War College. During his final assignment at U.S. Joint Forces Command, he led the Millennium Challenge, the largest transformation experiment in history. Ladies and gentlemen, I will stop here. I look very bad already. <laughs> so, Ambassador James Smith. Thank you, Prince Abdulaziz, for the very kind introduction. As most of you know, he comes from a part of the family that's known to challenge the status quo. We definitely need that debate. And once again, I want to congratulate Dr. Anthony not only for the success of this event, as evidenced by the turnout, but a long-term commitment, and for you, 30 years of a commitment to enhance understanding and engagement between America and the Arab world. Three, years, or th uh, three weeks ago, I completed my four-plus year experience as the U.S. Ambassador of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. 
And I left that posting with a deep affection and respect for the people of the country and the people of the region. It was a privilege for me to represent my country. Moreover, it was an honor to live in the kingdom during this remarkable moment in history. The forces of change, yet the compelling desire for stability, presented a dynamic piston of decision-making challenges for both the United States and the Saudi government. Living in this vast sweep of history over these last four years, I've learned to slow down. I've learned to listen. I've learned to watch and to adapt to a pace that respects the profound forces at work. I ask that you come with me for the next few minutes as we resist the 30-second soundbite. The incident analysis and headline grappling prophets of doom and gloom. I read just yesterday the latest edition on the race to hyperbole. Christopher Davidson, writing in Foreign Affairs magazine, has an article titled, The Arab Sunset, The Coming Collapse of the Gulf Monarchies. He joins a long list of authors who have predicted the fall of the al-Sud regime and the other monarchies in the region for several generations. We read the Twitter version. We wait for the fall. And then we're surprised as the weeks and months and years go by without the predicted revolution. In truth, the monarchies in the region over these last three years have shown a remarkable understanding of the needs of their populations. And they have been remarkably responsive on the key issues that their populations are calling for change. Not what we want them to do, what their populations are asking for them in terms of responsiveness and transparency. Now that's not to say that there are not profound forces at play, but there are two sides and at least two levels of each story. And I want to offer you some thoughts for your consideration. And instead of beginning the discussion from a U.S. interest perspective, let us try to consider the world through Saudi eyes. Over the last four years, I saw firsthand their fierce desire for stability. Their, their equally fierce pride in being Saudi, quick to always defend and reflect their culture, religion, and heritage. I might add, just as we defend and reflect our own culture and unique American experience. And just as the United States seems torn by forces at odds with each other here at home, I saw in Saudi Arabia a different kind of struggle. And I'm likely to describe that in a way different and odd to some. Because on one hand, 
you have those with a deep and abiding confidence in the kingdom. It's religion, it's culture, they're excited about the future. On the other hand, you have those who are deeply worried that somehow the culture is weak, that it is vulnerable, that social change might erode the very fabric of their society. The chorus of caution feels the need to control events, to keep out new ideas and outside views, as if the proud heritage will be threatened. These concerns tap a nerve to many Saudis. Conservative arguments are sharp and persuasive, and they tend to end debate. Now, all of us crave the comfort of stability, but if we look at the world through their eyes, we would be uncomfortable indeed. The kingdom must reckon with a whirlwind swirling around them, the eventual prospect, eventual someday, of declining oil revenues, and the need to respond to the aspirations of their citizens. While it has the resources to make many things possible, it cannot stop the swirl. Egypt is in economic crisis, Syria and Iraq continue in conflict and death, and there are fears of war, demands for funds, and pleas for peace. Headlines in the news each day, each week, each month suggest that no region has suffered for so long or endured so much violence. The repetition of revenge, internal tension, and helplessness cast a pale of hopelessness. So as the Saudi leadership scans the neighborhood, they see an uncertain future, political instability, economic chaos, refugee flows, and meddling from Iran and other regional players. Domestically, they see a demand for jobs, the need for energy alternatives, and requests for more freedom and opportunity. They have a full plate. And addressing these challenges, they want to balance their values with their needs. And in their own way, at their own pace, they have acted. And I would argue there are signs, even in the midst of this worrying horizon, of a new hope, creativity, and unprecedented advancement, a view that I think is seen with many Saudi eyes as well as our own. And some of those are here with us today because King Abdullah's historic commitment to education must be acknowledged. Not just his support for the almost 100,000 Saudi students and their families that are studying here in the United States, but for new colleges, universities, and research institutions throughout the kingdom. Saudi young men and women are surging ahead in academic achievement, and they will bring those talents back to the kingdom. And while initially captured as a vision for Kaus University, the notion of a new house of wisdom will not be achieved with one university, but it is entirely possible 
that the combination of an explosion to over 30 universities in the kingdom with the corresponding investment in education abroad will in time give rise to a new Dar al-Hikmah in Saudi Arabia. The kingdom is pushing ahead to advance business. Private sector growth is surging and U.S. trade reflects this. As Prince Abdulaziz said in his opening remarks, the U.S. trade to the kingdom has doubled. In fact, bilateral trade overall has doubled in the last four years. It's fair to say that Saudi Arabia is open to American ventures, but they will have to be competitive and our companies have to offer a value proposition that solves the key challenges within the kingdom, mainly job creation, training and education, and technology transfer. A central thesis of mine is that good business is good diplomacy. And I look around this room and I see many faces that have made a difference, either as job creators in the kingdom or as corporate social responsibility leaders. American business does have a competitive advantage when you bring the U.S. value proposition to, the, to meet Saudi aspirations in the sale of your product and service. And as I come back here to Washington and I look back to the region, what do I see? I see the same swirl of instability in the region from this vantage point. Egypt, whether under al-Morsi or al-Sisi, still has to contend with subsidies that it cannot afford, government policy unresponsive to the global market, disorder and revolt with resultant poverty and stagnation. Effective governance seems elusive. Tunisia, Libya, Lebanon, Yemen, Jordan, Sudan, Ethiopia, Bahrain, well, they're struggling. But we also yearn for the comfort of stability in the region. And we look to Saudi Arabia as the anchor for that stability. We look to Saudi Arabia as the bulwark against existing and potential threats, the calm leader to guarantee free flow of energy resources to our allies across the globe, to support our role in protecting the freedom of navigation in international waters, for it's not just about oil. If we allow the Straits of Hormuz to be closed, we have allowed an international precedent where the Straits of Malacca can also be closed. And the United States Navy is the only Navy in the world that can guarantee freedom of navigation in international waters. And that freedom is central to the stability of, the glo of global commerce. Yes, that precedent is anchored in the Arabian Gulf. You all know the value of Saudi Arabia to a stable energy market. They maintain the discipline associated with oil production and a commitment to expanded production in the case of crises. Stability in the oil markets translates to stability in prices and growth in the global economy. So how best to support 
the important role that Saudi Arabia plays. Now we can offer suggestions based on our own economic and historical models, our own experiences of what produces long-term growth and stability, but these are our experiences. They reflect our culture. However, we can support the creativity and responsiveness within the Saudi culture that is expressed by a diversity of leaders, men and women, across the kingdom. I've often said that as a former military officer, I took direction through a concept called mission-type orders. And in that vein, I looked for those opportunities, as President Obama said in the Cairo speech now over four and a half years ago, to look for shared interests based on mutual trust and mutual respect. We have had shared interests in business, in education, and in health care over these last four years. We also have shared interests in stability, but a stability that will be enhanced with intellectual engagement in the region. Yeah, we work together on Yemen. We effected a transition plan that has allowed President Hadi room to stabilize the country and to set a course for growth. We work very close on counterterrorism. We combined our efforts to degrade terrorist networks. And in the process, we have learned a lot from the Saudi experience and how to undermine support for extremism. We both struggle with the tragedy in Syria. And while much in the attention, especially this last week, has been on the United States and military intervention, the hard questions have to do is what's next after any kinetic involvement. To be sure, Syria is an enormous challenge. For the United States, it involves overcoming isolation at home and conflict fatigue. It involves building a coalition willing to ensure stability within Syria, an organized opposition that can keep bureaucracy functioning in place, guarantee minority representation and minority rights, and move forward with parliamentary and presidential elections, again using the Yemen model. It will probably involve some sort of stability force required to neutralize elements of al-Qaeda or the al-Nusra elements in Syria. It requires Western and Arab leadership. It means bringing China and Russia into the fold. These are all challenges. But it brings me to the sad question of the day. Are the deaths of 100,000 Arabs not worth our time and attention? Should not this tragedy call on us both, the United States and Saudi Arabia, to stop for a moment? To stop up for a moment in our geopolitical play-by-play and look deeper at the source of conflict, the perceptions that are reflected in the misery. I know there are a lot of people in the U.S. government and on the ground that are working the issue. I also acknowledge that much, much criticism has been directed at the United States. Indeed, in the last two days, 
you have seen here the mounting frustration with a perception of the lack of a coherent foreign policy and strategy in the region. But then we also hear the same refrain in that somehow only we can fix it. Perhaps we should just stop in our tracks for a moment. Stop pointing fingers and ask the fun fundamental question, why are these people killing each other? The issue is not just about the United States or the West. In fact, there is growing acknowledgement that it's not about us at all. I have seen King Abdullah's reaction to the killing of fellow Muslims, including Syria. His is a visceral reaction and pain at their suffering. I truly believe he just wants the killing to stop. And so should we. Last year, King Abdullah called for a summit of Muslim-majority countries during Ramadan. And during that summit, he called publicly for a dialogue within the Islamic community. The biggest challenge of the day is within the Islamic community itself. Syria is about Arabs killing Arabs, about Muslims killing Muslims. And the sad reality is, until the region reaches strategic fatigue on what I will call green-on-green -green killing, and takes to heart the challenge that King Abdullah made to the community at large last year, no amount of external involvement will make much difference. So this is a moment of historic opportunity and historic challenge for the Islamic world. Prince Turki al-Faisal has eloquently described the opportunity to recapture intellectual leadership, to expand the moral approach to social justice, peace, civil relations within Islam and within the region. I agree with him. In a recent speech last, year, last week in Washington, Prince Turkey emphasized the importance of having Iran as a full member of that dialogue. I believe that we are at a true inflection point. Syria may be the opportunity to change the concepts, notion of responsibility to itself, to embrace and own its own fate. I sense that Saudi Arabia could be poised to take the lead, both in intellectual and spiritual engagement, to sort out Islamic approaches to governance and respect for all peoples in the region, to find new and meaningful approaches to conflict resolution and justice. The kingdom has the resources and it has the people to take on this mighty task. And in my, my view, it is time for us to make King Abdullah's vision a reality. I will close by saying that there is much to do. The region needs the leadership of both the United States and Saudi Arabia. 
But my admonition to you is this. Yesterday's answers are not going to solve the problems of today. And if we insist on yesterday's script, we will fail those hoping for a better tomorrow. Thank you again, Dr. Anthony, for the opportunity to engage with you on the pressing issues of the day.